Our first story comes to you from Backstory producer Melissa Gismondi. It's a segment we're calling The Voice of Benevolence. This story starts in Ireland. It's the mid-1840s, and across the British colony, Irish people are starving to death. The accounts which reach us from many quarters of the country of the progress of the disease, which threatens the destruction of the whole of the potato crop, are deplorable in the extreme. The streets were thronged with poor, half-starved creatures who had come in from the country, hoping to obtain some relief for their famishing families. What was going on was that the population of Ireland, for starters, was uh, growing astronomically, uh, I think, in the first decades of the 19th century. Turtle Bunbury is a historian based in County Carlow, Ireland. It quadrupled to 8.5 million uh, between 1800 and 1845, um, which is an enormous uh, you know, increase. So... 1845, you've got eight and a half million people in the country. At least two million of them are reckoned to be living in extreme poverty. Landowners and farmers, they start exerting massive pressure on the, uh, on the peasantry, uh, the working class, as it were. They're, they're, they start raising the rents, terminating leases. They're uh, forcing evictions. And so then you end up with all these people trying to figure where are they going to go? Then, of course, you have the fact that they are notoriously uh, dependent on potatoes for their subsistence. It's what uh, everybody, well, not everybody, but a huge number of the uh, percentage of the population live on. Um, so inevitably, if there's a failure of that crop, that's going to have disastrous effects. So when the potato blight arrives in 1845, that's the first year, and it's quite bad in 1845, and it's worse in 1846, and it's terrible in 1847, uh, and it completely kills the crops throughout Ireland um, in, in 1847. It's known as Black 47 in Ireland. Uh, and it continues uh, through 1848, 1849. Um, so first of all, you've got no potatoes. What happens then is where do you go? A lot of people start piling into the workhouses and they became rife with cholera. What you end up with is this, uh, this, this intense starvation and starvation killed a lot of people. I mean, during the winter of 1846 and 1847, we are talking about r maybe 400,000 people dying due to a lack of food. By the end of the famine, it is generally stated that uh, up to one and a half million people uh, would have died on account of, of that, of starvation and disease. In Ireland, it's quite often known as the Great Hunger because um, when you look at it, there was food in Ireland. There was lots of food, but the laws of the free market meant that uh, grain, which was the main food, could be exported during that time. You didn't. There was no obligation to distribute it uh, amongst your poor and hungry. But you have the, the grain merchants, especially in Britain and, and in Ireland. They're a very powerful lobby. They're supplying enough grain from Ireland to feed a couple of million British mouths every year. 
So what you end up with is in 1847, you have this absurd situation of about 4,000 vessels leaving Ireland carrying food. That's why it's known as the Great Hunger, because there was food, it just wasn't going to Irish mouths. By 1847, news of the famine had crossed the Atlantic. Meanwhile, in Oklahoma, the Irish story of struggle and starvation resonated with one community in particular. My name is Gary Batten. I'm the chief of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. Today, the Choctaw Nation resides in southeastern Oklahoma. But before the 1830s, the Choctaw people occupied large parts of modern-day Mississippi. At that time, white settlers were eager to claim these lands, and they found an ally in President Andrew Jackson. In 1830, he signed into law the notorious Indian Removal Act. This act built upon earlier campaigns of dispossession. The Choctaw were one of the first nations to relocate under the terms of the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek. Their journey westward was one several nations took during the 1830s, that have become known as the Trail of Tears. And it was one, as Chief Batten explains, where we lost a third of our people along the way and, you know, where diseases uh, killed a lot of our people. Of course, we traveled during the harsh, cold uh, winter. So, I mean, literally, we had people that was losing grandma, grandpa. They were losing young children, babies. It was really a, a, um, a major critical time for us in regards to survival as a people that uh, were we going to be able to endure this trail to get to a place of hope. Thank God for our forefathers that we we made it to, to where we are today and to to give us, to me, what I always call is the values that we have today in the Choctaw Nation of, of servant leadership and of being that Tushka, that warrior uh, spirit that it still lives and, and breathes in our culture today. We'll come back to those values of service and leadership in just a bit. But first, you're probably wondering what the Trail of Tears and the Great Hunger have in common. It was right after we came across the, the Trail of Tears and then going through all the travesties that our tribal members had to, to deal with. And it, it was the, the soldier that actually uh, helped, if lack of a better word, guide our people over here. It was talking about the Irish potato famine. Two of the principal government figures during that whole Trail of Tears episodes were two brothers, Frank and William Armstrong. Uh, and they were Scots-Irish stock. A huge number of the people who came from Ireland uh, to America in the 18th century would have been Scots-Irish. And among them was their father, this guy, Colonel James Armstrong, um, who was from uh, a place called Enniskillen in County Fermanagh in Ireland. Anyway, he then later settled in Knoxville, and that's where his boys were raised. And uh, this is uh, Frank, uh, William, and their older brother, Robert. They were Jackson's men. And when Jackson became president in 1830, you know, the, the, the Armstrongs were part of, his, part of his gang. Frank Armstrong, he was sent off in 1831. He was dispatched to the Mississippi to take a census of the shock tour, uh, which meant basically surveying their farms before their departure because they were uh, about to set off on that uh, episode that would become the, the Trail of Tears. 
and uh, Frank ends up becoming agent to the shock tour, and he's in charge of basically receiving the shock tour as they cross the Mississippi. And to do that, he gets he persuades Washington to send the army over to build a new wagon road so they can get them all across. But then, of course, you tumble into the Trail of Tears. And he was appalled by what happened uh, that awful winter and all the horror. I mean, he was definitely, their shock tour were very fond of Frank Armstrong. And uh, when the, the crops, there was a crop failure in 1834, and he did what he could to try and source extra bushels of corn, extra to bring in extra corn for the, for the shock tour. They were starving. Um, and he was going full steam ahead when he was hit by an unidentified disease. I don't know, we don't know what it was. And he, he died in 1835. So when Frank died, his brother William uh, was brought across to become the new superintendent for Indian affairs. By early 1847, uh, America was becoming more and more aware of what was going on in Ireland. There were lots of ships that were piling into places like Boston and New York with uh, huge numbers of people telling of the horror back home. Um, and that story spread very quickly. When you look at contemporary newspapers all across uh, the US, people are actually starting to get very concerned about what is going on in Ireland and trying to, you know, starting to raise big money uh, and sending ships laden with provisions back across the Atlantic over to Ireland. So Major Armstrong, having, well, certainly his father, being an Irishman, he would have always been, you know, had one uh, eye on and one ear on Irish affairs. So I assume that he uh, was aware of that. And in any event, uh, just after St. Patrick's Day in 1847, a week after, he gathers a group of people in Scullyville, in, that, in, that, in the agency building, as it's called. And the purpose, as he summons them for, is to raise money for the relief of the starving poor of Ireland. Lots of people came. There were missionaries and all the traders and loads of other people who all came from around and about. And the shock tour, yeah, I mean, the chiefs of the shock tour, what, what they, when they subscribed their $170, that was obviously taken up very quickly as the most remarkable of all the donations. Back in that time, there was no governmental dollars like there is today. So they literally had to take money out of their pocket and and they wanted to help the people of Ireland because they did know uh, what it felt like to go through this travesty and to lose, you know, language, to lose culture, to lose your homes, all those types of things. They felt compelled to make sure and reach out and do what they could to help that situation, even though they were dealing with their own uh, situation at the time. As to what, uh, you know, why they did, why they made that donation, it's, uh, you know, is it for some sort of respect for the Armstrongs who were from Ireland? Or was it an empathy for a people who, whose circumstances must have sounded very familiar? They've been, uh, you know, the Irish were blighted by cholera epidemics and malnutrition, all of which, you know, the shock toll would have uh, dealt with in the appalling Trail of Tears 10, 12 years earlier. So uh, I think that must have been a, an important part of it. Well, I know just personally, and I know, of course, I wasn't there at the time, but I always say there's hope in agony. And so what I mean by that, when you can relate to somebody that has gone through the same experience that you have, you know, the old saying, you walk a, a mile in, in that person's moccasins, then you can you can truly know how that person feels. We knew what they were going through. Like I said, we, they were losing, like I said, language. They were losing family, children, grandparents, all those types of things. We related so well to the travesties that they were, they were going through. And I think that's the reason why our people reached out, because they wanted to make sure that they, 
that the Irish people knew that somebody cared about them. After um, Major Armstrong gathered up that money, he forwarded it on to the Memphis Irish Relief Committee, uh, and they then sent it on to the Society of Friends in Ireland, who were the, the Quakers um, who were organizing this massive relief campaign in Ireland. And when they got it, they, uh, the Society of Friends, they immediately referred to it as the voice of benevolence from the Western wilderness of the Western Hemisphere. Um, so, it, you know, it instantly singled out as something quite remarkable. It's important to say that the, the $170 raised in Scullerville was not the only money raised by the shock tour because there's a place called Dokesville, uh, which is, was the largest town in Indian Territory. It's about 50 miles south of Scullyville. And there they gathered $153, another $153. But for some reason, I don't know why there is no record of that contribution in the accounts of the General Irish uh, Relief Committee, which was the, the Society of Friends. Um, it was collected, but maybe it never got there. I don't know. In Oklahoma, Major Armstrong lived just long enough to see the donation he'd collected reach the Irish Relief Committee in Memphis. He died in June 1847. Meanwhile, the Choctaw Nation maintained their struggle to make Oklahoma home. Turtle Bunbury says that in 1860, they found themselves on the verge of famine after the region was hit by a terrible drought that ruined many crops. Back in Ireland, 1847 marked one of the worst years of the Great Hunger. The situation improved slowly, but Ireland was forever changed. What you end up with after the, the Great Hunger, as I say, the, the, the population uh, change in Ireland was absolutely massive. Um, and you get, you know, it, conversely, in, in, in North America, they suddenly got Irish people like they've never, ever had before. Meanwhile, in Ireland, the, uh, by 1850, 1851, the country starts to recover. It's got a lot less people. Uh, but the agricultural side of things actually picks up. And I think the 1850s, I mean, it's certainly not a prosperous country, but it's not the worst decade for Ireland. I think the story would have fitted into a book called Ireland's Forgotten History until about 20 years ago when things started to change. Mary Robinson, who was the president of Ireland for two terms for 14 years, um, she was uh, became a great friend of the Shock Tour nation. I think she might even be an honorary Shock Tour um, because she uh, was a, became aware of this story. I can't remember exactly how, but she ended up going over uh, and meeting the the heads of the Shock Tour nation and talking about it, and that gave it a bit of coverage. Uh, and then the Shock Tour would come across to uh, Mayo, where in, in in the west of Ireland, where there was this awful event where a lot of people weren't uh, walking went for a walk at the height of the famine in order to get some relief uh, and ended up being an awful uh, tragedy uh, as they all died. Uh, so uh, 150 years on from that event, there was a sort of trail of tears in, in Mayo, if you like, uh, in honor of these people. And the shock tour, the head of the shock tour nation, the chief of the shock tour nation at that time came over for that. So suddenly you start having this bonding and the press, uh, you know, the media in Ireland start picking up on it. It's an attractive story for school teachers to suddenly frame I get letters just about every year from a sixth grade class that sends thank you notes because they're teaching about the gift. 
I mean, it's a pretty hard story to take when you're a kid. You're trying to get your head around the fact that everybody ate potatoes, that they lived on them, and that it was this, you know, mammoth event in our past that uh, killed quite so. You know, those figures are unbelievable. The numbers of people who who died and, and emigrated. So, if you can get a positive story, which is what it is now and was then, um, and particularly from something that's kind of so extraordinary as the shock tour nation. Uh, I think that's why a lot of people have uh, warmed to it. And uh, I mean, even uh, in in 2018, Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach, the Irish prime minister, uh, he also went over to Oklahoma and met with the chiefs of shock tour nation. Part of the St. Patrick's tour around the U.S., Irish Prime Minister Leo Varadkar made a pit stop in Durant to visit the Choctaw Nation. When the Irish people were oppressed, abused, neglected, degraded, and starving, when you're at the lowest point, your spirit of generosity was at its highest. The Prime Minister is referring so it's to the very much part of our conscience now, and, and Alex Pentex, a uh, beautiful sculpture down in, in um, Middleton in County Cork, again, is putting it into our conscience. So I think a lot more people in Ireland are uh, aware of the story now than ever before. Alex Pentex's sculpture is called Kindred Spirits. When I reached him in between meetings at a hotel lobby, he told me he had a very specific goal in mind. I depicted... Um, a fusion of ideas to try to communicate the, the horror of both histories of Ireland and also of the um, Choctaw Trail of Tears only a few years previous. I took uh, an, the, the symbolic image of an empty bowl um, and I made that from a series of nine um, round-tipped eagle feathers which are used in Choctaw ceremonial dress. So the nine feathers are sort of creating a bowl-shaped form uh, to create a permeable sculpture uh, that is a sort of a mix of ideas to visually try to communicate this story. Alex's sculpture was unveiled at a commemoration ceremony in 2017. He remembers meeting Chief Batten at the event and how much he appreciated Alex's vision for the sculpture. And, uh, And he really understood the message that I was trying to sort of put forward in the work, in that I was remembering the history of the 1847 donation, but also, I think, speaking beyond the history with the image of this up, these uplifting feathers and the humanity, and I suppose really the notion of solidarity and standing together against adversity. And he really understood that and mentioned that in his opening speech, that, that, that the piece of work communicated visually our shared history, but also spoke out to present-day meaning where... We have numerous tales of oppression around the world and that we have to stand together against adversity and that's what the piece is about. I was very humbled by the gratitude of the Irish people. I think then I understood the significance of being a tribal member. Uh, even as, you know, as being a chief, as growing up, as always being Choctaw, you know, I mean, I don't know that I really understood the... I don't want to say it, it understood the significance of that because people just by mere being Choctaw held you in such great esteem of giving this gift of hope. And I, I think it even made me even embrace that we are. I mean, I've always embraced that we are a nation, but when another nation says, thank you, nation, for helping us, remain as a nation, as a country. My brain really just kind of exploded in regards to 
how significant our people are to the world. I think one of the things about when you when you look at the famine and try and see some sort of light in amongst all that darkness, it, it comes from the unusual people who are bringing forward relief. Uh, and there were some really, truly extraordinary people. There was Captain Forbes bringing his warship across the Atlantic. There were fishermen from Cape Cod who who sailed across the sea with provisions in their in their schooners uh, to bring to the starving Irish. There was unusual stories like the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire uh, who uh, contributed money uh, towards the relief. But the the shock tour stands out because it really it was an extraordinary sort of in those times with so many thousands and thousands of miles between Ireland and Oklahoma, uh, that sort of hand of friendship really uh, that, that went across the the latitudes and the longitudes. Um, it was it was really extraordinary. And I can understand why it must have sent a, a shiver up the spine of the people you know when they were working with the relief committee in Dublin to realize where it had come from. Uh, and I think it still does to this day. I always say that history always tells whether you make a great decision or not. So I don't know that the people of Ireland or the people of the Choctaw tribal members knew the significance, the impact that that would make. But it's later, you know, like now, people of Ireland says, you helped us remain who we are as the people of Ireland. It was because of that gift of hope that helped us stay true to our values, to our culture, to our language. You know, when you initially hear about it, you think $170, you know, is that is that that big of an impact? But the spirit of the gift is what made the impact. That was Chief Gary Batten of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. You also heard from Turnell Bunbury, author of 1847, a chronicle of genius, generosity, and savagery, and from sculptor Alex Pentec, 